Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. economic indicators who knows where this is going to end up to understand the economy you have to understand human nature this podcast is powered by Acast how you doing there it's David it's the podcast you know the drill we're trying to make that uh, economics carry on a wee bit more comprehensible and a little bit more understandable for all of us and we're trying to do this through learning economics and again as I say if you're interested in learning economics you're never too young you're never too old have a look on patreon our economic courses the ask mac tutorials this week's the tutorial was on why actually classical economics doesn't understand unemployment and unemployment is on lots of people's minds because clearly the issue is you know, how the hell we get out of this COVID-inspired, as I call it, a pandemic, because it's a recession brought about by a pandemic. And we can see, again, we've just uh, heard over the weekend that our lockdown has got to go into three weeks. So again, more pressure there. So listen, have a look at the uh, patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Have a look at the education side and learn economics with us. I am joined, of course, by Mr. Davis. How are you, Ed? I'm good. I'm gearing up for my next three weeks in lockdown. Uh, or level three. And and to be honest, I don't really know what the level two, level three, level four means. Like there's so many conflicting views in the media and particularly radio where they're just trying to fill time, wheel on this voice and that voice, you know, and have some sort of debate about the issues, you know, but it's actually more confusing than anything else. So I'm just locking down. Simple yeah, well, I mean, the, the whole, the, we're, we're all kind of batting down the hatches. Again, I, I must admit, I've been reading quite a bit in the last while about the Swedish approach. I read a very good interview with the head of immunology and public health in Sweden. And he said, look, our approach is how do we make this sustainable, knowing that it's not going to go away, right? Yeah. Knowing that it's going to be with us for some time. He said, is it feasible to lock down, to not lock down, to open up to lock down? And he actually mentioned, he said, look, businesses will go out of business and people will lose their jobs, and a huge part of the economy will be destroyed. But he also said mental health issues will be compromised, and lots and lots of people will be dislocated. And their idea was, look, we need to have a policy that sustains us through four years, five years, if needs be. And it's very clear to me, it's very clear to me, our policy of basically just kind of whack the mole. You whack the mole in the head of the lockdown. If it comes up, you whack it again. If it comes up, you whack it again. 
I mean, that's not a sustainable strategy, unfortunately. And, yeah, and then uh, you have all these celebrity-type characters throwing in their tuppence worth. The likes of fucking Van Morrison bringing out three new songs that are all anti-COVID, anti-masking, you know, talking about tyranny and stuff. And Noel Gallagher is another one as well with his anti-masking nonsense. Like, just shut up. You're not qualified <laughs> to talk about it. You're, you're not adding anything. You're just kind of stirring more shit. Can I tell you a Noel Gallagher story? Tell you Noel Gallagher's story. I met Noel Gallagher a couple of years ago at a U2 gig, right? And Noel Gallagher was the This the high five birds. Yeah. Yeah, he was the yeah, support yeah. act. And after the gig, after the not after the gig, after his his gig, he came up to this area and I ended up standing beside him. <laughs> and there's a moment in the U2 gig of the Joshua Tree, where I think it's the streets have no name. I think it is, and the opening opening of the streets have no name. You know the the the, the sort of it kind of builds and builds and builds and builds. Yeah, yeah. And what it is is a drone footage, so it's incredibly poignant, right? It's a drone footage going over Aleppo, Raqqa in Syria. Okay. And it's the site of total destruction, total destruction, like mile after mile after mile of bombed out houses, of empty shells of streets destroyed and it's an incredibly poignant moment right and of course you two are delivering this to yeah, an incredibly receptive yeah the edge is doing the guitar yeah. and the audience is is just being brought to a moment where they're trying to reveal the the fact that you know this is uh syria and Noel Gallagher standing beside me goes all right mate do you see that there i say what yeah he says do you know where that is Fucking Liverpool. (laughs) (laughs) Always the mank. (laughs) Anyway, you're in good form. I'm in great form. I'm in great form. But tell us, what's been on your mind this week, Mike? What have you been thinking about? Well, John, you know, Brexit has been intriguing me, right? And intriguing me because of the following, John. I have been looking at what is happening in the UK. And I'm looking at what seems to me to be the balkanization of Britain. And by that, I mean that the United Kingdom is beginning to display the same sort of characteristics as Yugoslavia did before Yugoslavia ended in genocide and war. That is not to say, that is not to say that I ever imagined the United Kingdom to dissolve in genocide and war. That will not happen. But what is really fascinating here What is really fascinating is if you look at the last 40 years' history in Western Europe, two countries have broken up, the Czech Republic and the Slovak Republic, Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia, right? Now, the Czech Republic and Yugoslavia both broke up in totally different ways. The reason I think Britain is going to break up is that Britain is now a country which has got five separate nationalist movements tugging at the centre. You have Irish nationalism in Northern Ireland. You have what I would call Ulster nationalism in Northern Ireland. You have Scottish nationalism. You have Welsh nationalism. And of course, you have Brexitism, which is basically English nationalism in drag. That's all it is. It's dressed up English, right? So if you think of it, right, so it's English nationalism in drag. It's, It's English nationalism in the last night of the proms drag. But that's what it is, right? All these all these forces are pulling at the centre, they're pulling at what we know to be the United Kingdom. And 
clearly they're not going anywhere because if you look at all the polls over the last 10 years, you see a huge shift in Scottish nationalism. You see in Northern Ireland, Sinn Féin and the DUP, the two big nationalist parties and those two identities ruling the roost. And more interestingly, what you see is that in 2010, John, UKIP got 3% of the vote on a Brexit vote, 3% only. Last year, the Conservatives got 47% of the vote on a Brexit vote, which is basically an English nationalist vote. So what you can see is these nationalists are pulling the UK apart. And it's like a lot of things. You don't realise what's actually happening in front of your nose until history tells you 10 years later that's what was happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the boiling frog thing. It is, it is. So you look at the UK and we're, you know, we're, you know, Brexit and this, that, but actually what's much more interesting is that a country made up of four, well, three separate countries and then a bit of another one yeah. is becoming much more fragile by the day as nationalism plays out. Now, the interesting thing to go back to the Czechs and the Czechoslovak and the Yugoslavs, right? The role of leadership was crucial in both of those. If the centre becomes nationalist, then it inflames the nationalism on the periphery and consequently you tend to get this movement towards dissolution. Now, what happened in Czechoslovakia is that when Czechoslovakia broke up, the leadership of Czechoslovakia was Vaclav Havel, you know, the poet, okay? And he played an an almost Mandela-esque role. Even though he was Czech himself, he sat down and he said, look, if this really has to happen... We should be mature about it. We should figure things out. We should separate. And he eventually presided over what was called the, the velvet divorce. Yeah. So the Czechs went one way, the Slovaks went one way. No, any, no acrimony, it happened, right? Right. And of course, what Havel did was the minute the Republic, the Czechoslovakian Republic imploded, he resigned. He said, I have no part of this. I'm not going to take any sides. And what you see is leadership is crucial. Contrast that with Yugoslavia. So what happens in Yugoslavia, Yugoslavia is a federation of six republics. It's got three different religions, two different alphabets, but it is a functioning country for a long, long time. Under Tito. Under Tito. And even before that, under the Kingdom of Yugoslavia, right? Okay. Before the Second World War. Now, then, of course, what happens, and this is the parallels, is that a country like that could only stay together as long as the major, major bloc, the Serbs, were wedded to the idea of the federation. Once the Serbs went nationalist and allowed Serb nationalism to come out, the entire thing began to unravel. So until Slobodan Milosevic came to power, the Serbs were generally... How would you say this? The Serbs were generally accepting of and supporting of the Yugoslav federation. Right. But then what happened was Milosevic set fire to Serb nationalism in Kosovo. Kosovo is the province in the south of Serbia, which was basically a majority of Albanian Muslims and a minority Serbs, right? But the point, and I come back to Johnson, right, is that Johnson is using nationalism to bolster his own position, to take over the Conservative Party. But the unintended consequences of that is it inflames the nationalism all around the UK, whether that's Irish nationalism, whether it's Scottish nationalism, etc. And what you see is that the role of the leader at critical times is absolutely crucial. So Vaclav Havel orchestrates the dissolution of Czechoslovakia in an orderly, mature, sensible fashion. 
Slobodan Milosevic does the opposite. He creates these huge tensions within the country. He basically tells the Serbs they are the victims, even though they were actually the dominant race in Yugoslavia. What Johnson is doing is similar. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying Johnson's any... You know, Milosevic was a war criminal in the end. But the way in which countries break up is very similar. If the centre decides to abandon the union, and if the centre decides to go nationalist, as England is doing now, and if the polls respond to that, and if policy responds to this, what you can see is you're almost... You're almost certain that the country is going to break up. And what I see in the UK are these extraordinary parallels between Yugoslavia and Britain. In the same way, Serbia is England, the dominant player. Scotland is Croatia, the second biggest power. Wales is kind of compromised and is more like Montenegro that went with Serbia, and you see in Wales the vote is split between Brexiteers and Welsh nationalists. Okay, maybe it's a function of Wales' smallness and proximity to England, but it's very like Montenegro. And of course, Bosnia and Northern Ireland begin to look quite similar. So what I think we should be very aware of is that what is going on in the UK is that, first we we're aware of one thing, John, which is, which is the following, that countries do break up. That's the first thing. Right, right? yeah. It seems hard to get your head around that, but they, that does happen. The natural order of things. The natural order of things, basically things reset, okay? Yeah, yeah. The background noise to Yugoslavia and Czechoslovakia breaking up was the breakup of the Soviet Union, okay? That was the big event, right? What we have now with respect to the UK is Brexit is the big event and also the rise of populism around the world and the rise of nationalism around the world. But when I look at Yugoslavia... When I look at the fragility of the UK, and I don't for one minute believe that the UK is going to end in any sort of genocidal crisis, that's not going to happen. But the way in which countries break up is very, very similar. And what Johnson is doing now is, in my opinion, without any shadow of a doubt, increasing the likelihood that the United Kingdom that we were brought up with, that has been around since the Act of Union with the Scottish in 1707, the Act of Union with us in 1801, something that we always thought was going to be there. I'm not sure in our kids' adult life, not when they're older, in their adult life, that the United Kingdom is still going to be around. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, I am delighted, delighted to have an old mate on the line from London. Pippa Malgram is one of those unique characters, unique characters. I've known her for many years. We've done a whole lot of gigs together all over the place, all over the world. Remember those times when you used, to, you used to be able to travel? Yeah, at that time when we were able to travel, we did gigs all over the world. She's a regular at Kilconomics. She's been at the Dorky Book Festival. In fact, one of the most extraordinary gigs that we ever hosted at Kilconomics was Pippa and her father, Harold Malgram. For many reasons, but one I'll give to you was that between the pair of them, they have advised five American presidents. Now, that's a father and daughter combo. Five American presidents. Her father, Harold, was in the room. Now, in the room with JFK. Think about this. In the room with JFK, the night of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, that is an extraordinary story. Pippa has a rake of stories of her own. It's wonderful to have you. Pippa, how are you? I'm well. Thank you so much. It's great to be on with you. Uh, it's fantastic. Now, Pippa, you've always got a different take on things, which is exactly what I love. And may I just say, you predicted the global financial crisis 2008, you predicted Brexit, and you predicted Trump. So you've got a good track record, an amazing, impeccable track record. And the vast majority of economists all around the world didn't get any of those. You got the three of them. Let's start with big politics and then we'll go smaller, if going to the United States is smaller. Okay, where, what do you see as the big geopolitical issue of our time? So what I think is most interesting is that geopolitics used to be about war games, like with aircraft carriers and tanks. And today, geopolitics is literally about children's games. It's TikTok and WhatsApp. And so how did that transition happen? It's really important to understand that the new battlefield is data. And these children's games like Fortnite and Minecraft and TikTok are not actually about games. They're about gathering data about the users. And the more data you gather about humans, and I don't just mean like facial recognition that says, oh, it's Pippa. No, it's the microfacial movements that indicate when are you lying? When are you excited? When are you sad? And this is a gold mine of information from a state point of view and from any advertising point of view. And so the competition for who can gather the most data is very intense between what we used to call the superpowers. And further than that, all of them are investing now in supercomputing technology, quantum computing. You know, the White House just announced billions of dollars for quantum computing. Why? Because if you have a ton of data, then you need a ton of processing power in order to make sense of it. And so the new space race is for this computational power and whoever wins basically can break the other guy's codes. And it doesn't matter whether we're talking nuclear codes or we're talking the genetic code, or we're talking the code to your Bitcoin password. This is incredibly valuable stuff. And I predict that we're going to have 
private sector commercial spinoffs from this government investment in the new geopolitics, just like we did in the 1960s, we had incredible spinoffs from NASA. We'll have spinoffs from this new era of geopolitics. Well, well I mean, again, let, let's, let's, let's get uh, a little bit deeper into this. You know, I am slightly aware that there is some issue with TikTok and the Americans being very nervous, actually, about who owns TikTok and who owns data. Let's get a little bit deeper in this. Explain to me why data is the goldmine of the 21st century, why it is the NASA of the 21st century, why the big superpowers would be concerned about accessing, owning data. Is it not a case that we all, all our data is owned by a hell of a lot of companies? Uh, it is, but we're in this era they're now calling the era of surveillance capitalism. And what that means is that you're being observed all the time. In fact, the, it's not just what you say or do into your screen, your, let's say, iPhone screen. Did you know the way you touch or pinch or swipe that screen is now a better identifier of who you are than your thumbprint? So no way. The, the way you walk is identified by the phone in your pocket, and it can indicate whether you're having heart trouble. So now an observer who buys that data, which of course is all auctioned off on the net all the time, they know you're going to have a heart attack before you know you're going to have a heart attack. And so at the level of states to have such deep knowledge of not only whole societies, but imagine any given individual, let's say an individual that, you know, in the old days, we might have considered a protected, you know, secret asset, let's say the head of a military in the United States. Yeah, now the guy's got his kids at home playing these games and suddenly what's happening in the home is observable to foreign powers. And this is why, one of the reasons why this business of surveillance capitalism coming together with toys sounds like becomes a national security issue. Okay, let's talk about this surveillance capitalism because, again, this is something that when you come from the traditional world of economics, as, as I do, you kind of measure things that, which are measurable and quantifiable. You can put a price on them, you know, how many ships there are, how many houses are built, etc. But let's come to surveillance capital. Who is doing the surveying and why is this data, if it is public, why is it privatized? Why doesn't a state say, well, you know what we're going to do is we're going to own the data rather than a Facebook or a Google or a TikTok or what's that Chinese company? We, what's it called? WeChat. WeChat. So let's talk about WeChat. But like, why, before we talk about WeChat, let's look at the dynamics of surveillance capital. What exactly is it? The data is the most valuable thing. Who owns it and why do they own it? Yeah. So what's happened is every human pretty much gives us away because they just want to use their mobile phone and make a phone call or look at something on the net. So they're not thinking about how do I monetize this? They're just trying to do something. But in China, that data uploads ultimately to the state. And they've networked the system in such a way that you can't really do anything without the state being aware of what you're doing. So it becomes a mechanism for outright surveillance. Um, and, you know, some people would go so far as to say that, 
you know, we used to talk about the Stasi, which was the secret police in East Germany in World War II. And they used to spy on everybody to see if anybody was doing anything they shouldn't be doing. Well, the Stasi could only dream of the kind of information that now is readily accessible and which the Chinese authorities use to impose order and to punish anyone who expresses opinions that aren't in alignment with the state. And, and basically, if you jaywalk, meaning you cross the street at the wrong spot, um, not where the light is, not where the intersection is, you already get a text message in your phone before you're halfway through the street with the fine and your image goes up on the nearest LED screen to say this person is a jaywalker and violating the rules, right? So it's a, it's a mechanism for creating social behavioral outcomes. Now in the West, we privatize this function. So it's Google and Amazon and Apple. And, and so the question is, is it really any different if you privatize it? And that's a big debate we could have. But the point is everybody gives their data away and doesn't really have a way of controlling it or monetizing it. Well, the, the extraordinary thing about, you know, 1984 and the Stasi, because remember in 1984, there was a TV screen in everyone's room. And the TV screen was a double screen. So it was watching you as you were watching it. And the way in which you could escape it clearly was to try and get out of that room, try to turn it off, or when you were in that room, not engage with it. But in actual fact, what you're saying, surveillance capital, is that we are all willingly allowing ourselves to be observed, to be surveyed, to be noted. In the extreme case in China, you get a... I mean, could you imagine that in Dublin, getting a buzz every time you actually cross the street? That would be quite hilarious. And you're saying the, the investment in quantum mechanics or quantum computing is to access all that data to prioritize all that data, to, to actually in some way make that data legible and enforceable. What does it mean, before I talk about the big demographic democratic moment next month in the United States, the election, what does that mean for our sense of liberty, our sense of democracy, our sense of privacy? You know, there are things that have been since the Enlightenment, since the French Revolution, the American Revolution, part and parcel of being a Western citizen. You're private. You're Private life is your own. You're democratic. Democracy is something that you go in and you exercise your right at the ballot box. It is, is it, it is secret. So much of our lives are involved around the notion of secrecy and privacy. What does all this mean for, you know, for, for democracy, for the way we live, for the liberal order, all that sort of stuff? Well, I, you could do a whole podcast just on this because I think the consequences for society are enormous. And so the way to think about it is, I already have a digital twin that is an electronic representation of myself that exists out on the internet. And she reveals more about my true state of thinking and my behaviors than I even know about myself. And institutions buy that data, like for example, banks. And banks begin to look at, the, let's say a husband and wife who live in the same house and they check out the spending patterns and they can see the divorce before the couple sees it. And then oh, they'll Jesus. start to try Oh, Jesus. Uh, yeah, Come hello. <laughs> I hear you, exactly. And then they'll start to drive down the credit limit of the lower earning partner in anticipation of the financial catastrophe that's about to happen to that person. So there are consequences to our behaviors that we don't even know are revealed. And so I could spend the whole rest of the podcast just talking about how profoundly important this is. And we need to go back and rethink the social contract, the relationship not only between 
states and citizens, but between companies and customers, between individuals, and how much is influenced by the fact that some have access to this information and some don't. And just to make a fine point on it, uh, when you say, you know, there has to be a system for processing it and for making a pattern out of it, you know, the fastest supercomputer in the world right now is made by IBM NVIDIA. Uh, it's called Summit. And the new version is called Sierra. And we keep them at Oak Ridge in Tennessee. Now, that's where we keep the nuclear capability of the United States. That's how valuable we see it to be. And it can process in one single second what takes a human 6.3 billion years, that's with a B for boy, to calculate. So wow. the volume of information that can be compressed into split seconds is it's exponential. And so this idea that my digital twin can be assessed, whether that's by Marks and Spencer or that's by a major bank or whether that's by a radio station, the point is that this is a different relationship between citizens and organizations than we've ever seen before. And it's worthy of our time and attention. Wow, it sounds like a, an episode from Black Mirror, if you're familiar with it. I got to tell you, every time I see Black Mirror, I'm like, this is not fiction. <laughs> this guy is just, he just reads Wire magazine. He's just like quoting from the articles. Yeah. This is real. Can I ask you about, I'm sure you're familiar with Mark Blythe and Eric Lonergan's book, Angonomics, where they propose the idea of leasing our data to companies rather than just giving it away for free. What do you think about that? Is is that an option or is that in any way realistic? So I think a lot of people are working on this problem. Uh, there's another angle which is very interesting, which is that you construct uh, mechanisms on the net that allow you to keep control of the data, but allow access to it temporarily, but the user doesn't get to keep it. And so then you know, and, and so for example, your medical records, yeah. You control your medical records, but you can give permission to a doctor to access it, but not to retain it, for example. And I think the complexity of that is rather great, but technology is moving fast enough that we're going in that direction. Of course, the existing organizations like you know Google, Amazon, don't really like that because their whole shtick is that they make money on the fact that we give all this away. So if we individuals start learning how to get paid for it, <laughs> then that's competition for, for Google. Do you know what right. I'd be doing right now? I would be shorting Facebook and Google because, and all those data haulers or miners, simply because somebody's got to be the boss in society and it can't be private sector companies as, you know, the first Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, took uh, our friend Rockefeller in, you know, many years ago and said, man, you've got too much power. And it's undemocratic. But Pippa, look, again, as I, as I said before we went, uh, when I was introducing you, always, these are always fascinating stuff. We're going to come back to this data dystopia, our data fantastic future at a certain <laughs> stage. I want to go back because it is, it is extraordinary because, Brilliant. again, it's like all of us. You're, kind of, you're a kind of unwitting participant in the game that you've no idea of. We've no idea of the value of our privacy. We don't know what, how to put a, a number on it. 
But as you say, every single day, we are revealing bits about ourselves that are valuable to others. By the way, John, if I were you, I wouldn't go on all those weird websites you're on all the time, man. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that I've wiped my history. Yours. Don't worry about it. <laughs> John's mad shit is a place you don't want to be. You don't want to be. Pippa, let's talk about Donald Trump. We're five weeks odd away from the American election. Where do, you, where do you see it going? And again, I know that last time at you, you got it on the on the nose. You said Trump would win. Most people said he had no hope in hell. The polls said he had no hope in hell. Up until the very, very evening, up until the last few hours, the network said he had no hope in hell. You nailed it. You got it right. What do you think this time? So I think he can win again, which I know for everybody in Europe, outside the United States, sounds just ridiculous, outrageous. But... Yep. It's really interesting when you really look at it. Um, there's one particular group that I would be paying close attention to, and that is the African-American community and particularly women who are in the middle age years because the support from them has gone through the roof. And overall, the African-American community has doubled the level of support in like the last month and a half. Hold on. Can I just stop you there, Pippa? So... Amongst African-Americans, support in the polls, in, 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 in every single opinion poll for Donald Trump is going up. Yeah, that's I, exactly I had no idea. And fast and dramatically. And the reason seems to be because they were having all these protests and riots. And there's a lot of destruction of, of physical property. And you've seen the pictures of Trump going to the, those locations and saying, this is very terrible. And, you know, the rioters should be you know, taken care of. And well, it's actually the mothers in those neighborhoods who are like, we agree, we're really law and order. They want the police there. They don't want their neighborhood burned down. And so it's weird, but actually that community also is very entrepreneurial because let's face it, the big corporations of America have not been good at hiring African-Americans. We know this, it's so obvious. I mean, you can see it with your eyes. So what has happened to all those very bright, educated people, they have to create their own companies. Now, when you become an entrepreneur, you look at Donald Trump and you say, well, I may not like what he says, but you know what? He represents a more friendly business environment. He represents less regulation, lower taxes. So actually, they're, they're part of what they call the silent Trumpers. They would never say out loud that they support him, but privately, they're like, yeah, actually, he serves my interests. I can add in some other things like the Democrats have been particularly complacent about assuming that the African-American vote belonged to them no matter what. And that's being shaken by, by reality today. But here's the key thing I would, again, pay attention to. I'm listening every day for any hint that Trump suddenly says that he intends to make marijuana legal at the federal level. Now, why is this relevant? It's relevant because... Almost all the people in American prisons that are incarcerated are African-American, first of all. Second of all, huge percentage of them are there on marijuana possession, nonviolent charges. So almost every African-American family in the country has a cousin, a brother, an uncle, a daughter who's been in prison since the teenage years. And if Trump comes and says, well, actually, now it's legal in a whole bunch of states, so why do we have people incarcerated for something that's legal on the open streets? They should be let free. And then also he will present himself as a guy who reunites families, right? And I just think as he, he's clever, he will know that this particular part of the vote 
is the key. And what can he announce that will just swing them over to his side? That will be one of them. And, and I'll finish by saying there was recently a chief of staff was asked about this in the White House and he gave one of those denials where he went, oh, no, no, we would never. Oh, so I can't not answering. Yeah. Denying it a little too hard, leaving it for the president to make that announcement. So, so hold on. This is again. Wow. Fascinating. So let's go back. So the, the one demographic that I would have assumed would be so profoundly anti-Donald Trump are middle-aged black women in the United States for all the reasons that we know Black Lives Matters happened and the way in which he dog-whistled to white militias, etc., encouraged them. You know, his, you know, his idea in, in Charlottesville, well, there were good people on either side, etc., etc., when we know that one side were actually anti-Semites, racists, etc., right? So you're saying park that traditional, conventional view of Trump and go into an African-American area where property has been looted, where mothers are worried about their son's safety, and mothers are saying, I trust Donald Trump more with law and order than I trust Joe Biden. Is that what you're saying? It seems to be that this is, I'm not saying it's 100%, but I am saying it's a political phenomena that everyone on the left and the right is now paying close attention to because no one expected this. But the protests, the riots, the destruction of property has actually revealed that there's a whole community that doesn't have the usual position that you would have expected. You see this as well, by the way, in Baltimore, there's there's a young woman who spoke at the uh, Republican National Convention, and I'm just terribly flaking on her name, but she's incredibly articulate. African-American woman who basically gives a very uh, interesting explanation as to why the Democrats have left urban areas behind, that they urban areas are still suffering from a lot of the problems they've had for 30 years. And she says Democrats have been in charge the whole time and they haven't delivered. This is resonating in a way that I haven't seen before in my lifetime. But, but, But we know, just to stop there, we know that Democrats haven't been in charge for the last 30 years. In fact, Democrats have been in charge less than no, Republicans. No, no, no. In cities. Oh, in the cities. Okay, okay, okay. In cities. So and that's is... her argument is that in cities where they have been in charge, we're not better off. And that, all I'm saying, and we can agree, disagree with whether that's true. The point is something is happening that's resonating. So that's something to pay attention to. Another thing, by the way, is that everyone assumed that the military vote would definitely be pro-Trump. And now we have General Mattis, who's probably the most respected military official alive today in the United States, you know, both sides of politics. And he coming out saying that the president is, you know, dangerous and yes. you know, hinting we might have a constitutional crisis because he might not leave if he's not reelected or if he is elected, he might not leave next time. So. So then on the other side, you've got a whole bunch of people who would not have voted a Democrat before, but they will now. And so it's really up for grabs like this. And that's why the polls are not going to catch this, because it, people are making decisions for reasons that haven't been expressed before. And so, you know, the polls won't be able to capture that. Can I ask you, Pippa, you know, there's been numerous books, the Bob Woodward books and Bolton, et cetera, et cetera, told from the perspective of being in the room and saying what 
Trump is really like and what he really believes. How come those stories aren't sticking to him? He's like a Teflon orange Don. He is a Teflon. Well, and Teflon is a quality that many American presidents have had. Like Ronald Reagan was totally Teflon. Yeah. Bill Clinton was really Teflon as well. Uh, it's not something that only you know, Democrats or Republicans have. Like there are just some politicians who have this quality. All I can say is that also the people who already supported and liked him are not really swayed by any of the facts, including one of the strangest things that observers are, are witnessing is the, the poor, uneducated white American who are the most vulnerable and susceptible to COVID and who are now seeing those numbers skyrocket. Yeah, they don't blame Trump for that. They don't. Yeah. It's just absolutely nothing to do with him. And they have all kinds of other theories about what's caused it. And so it's not that this isn't rational, right? <laughs> sure Politics is emotional. John, it's America. It's not rational. <laughs> yeah. But it's actually, but it's also, the point is, it's human beings. We are not rational. We're excitable. We're prejudiced. We've got our biases. We come to the table with a preordained set of views about the world. And then we shoehorn the data and the evidence into that worldview. And that's why, of course, the, the African-American middle-aged woman or the previously Democrat military person, this is the interest. That's the swing. That's the, that's the area that nobody knows about because it hasn't spoken for itself just yet. Pip, I want to ask you about the economy, right? If we talked six months ago, uh, we would have said an American president going into an election with an unemployment rate of 10-odd percent or wherever it is, had no hope in hell of winning. Now we know that it's still open. Do you think whenever COVID disappears, and by that I mean, is it a second lockdown, a third lockdown, is there a vaccine, etc.? How do you think the economy is going to behave? You know, what sort of recovery you think is going to be? Yeah, so I have a really strong view on this. And people are often asked me, what do I think is the, quote, shape of the recovery? And they'll say, is it a W? Is it a V? Is it an L shape? Right. And I, my answer is it's not linear. It's quantum. And by that, I mean, it's going to be several things at the same time, like in the 1920s, when we were recovering from World War One and the Spanish flu, which, by the way, was way worse because you could be perfectly fine at 10 a.m. and dead by 10 p.m. with the Spanish flu. So people were so happy to be alive at all after the, all that devastation and those who had assets and some money really formed the fodder for that great novel, The Great Gatsby. And they all drank champagne through the 1920s. And there was a huge amount of innovation going on in the 1920s, technologically as well. At the same time, we had 60% of the American public at the poverty line. And a lot of people permanently lost their foothold in the world economy. And they formed the foundation for another great American novel called The Grapes of Wrath, who never found their foothold again. And we lost two generations who couldn't find a way to make a living. So can you have both at once? Absolutely. And I think this is the thing when we talk about the recovery, my question is for who? So it's going to be different for different people. And I think one, one way I've heard it discussed is, you know, we used to be talk, we used to talk about the world split into um, the anywheres and the um, somewheres. The somewheres, right? yeah, the somewheres a, a great... are people who are local 
that, you know, they're like, I live in Dublin and this is my home and this neighborhood and this is my, and the people like me who are like, I don't know, I'm, I'm all over the shop. I have friends all over the world. I can live in a lot of places. Yeah, now it's Zoomers and non-Zoomers. It's people who can figure out how to make a living in this digital space and people who can't and they have to be physically present to do their work. That's a huge divide in society, a whole new elevation of the digital divide. But having said all that, my ultimate conclusion is actually, I think we're gonna recover. Generally, we're gonna recover from this problem of COVID faster and more strongly than most expect. And almost everyone is locked down, ready for the Great Depression Mark II. And that means all the bad news has been factored in. Like there's almost no further bad news that you could put on the table, right? Every single restaurant pretty much is closed. If one of them is not closed, you're like, wow, let's go there, right? And so I think a little bit of good news, it's gonna be like, great, there's some good news. And so I think we're, and plus record amount of money thrown at the world economy, just sloshing around looking for a home. So I'm a little bit optimistic about how we come out of this. It may take a little time, but I think we're going to get there. Well, you know, it's fascinating you talk about uh, the 20s. Now, clearly no other economics podcast gets both Steinbeck and Fitzgerald in there <laughs> in one fell swoop. You know, we're an eclectic, literary, literary people. But, you know, but what does interest me about the 20s, the 1920s in America, you get basically the Model T Ford you get electricity, you get the radio, you get these extreme, you get the elevator, the elevator changed, the face of the Which gave you skyscrapers. These, exactly. So it changed that. In the 1920s, you have this extraordinary legacy, which was, came from the First World War of industrial production. And then people said, well, if we can make machines with this, we can make guns, we can make consumer goods with this. It's the first period of consumerism in the United States. You get people buying on credit for the first time ever in the United States. So I think you're right. The 20s is the most, it's it's shorthand for, as you say, you know, Scott Fitzgerald and all that. But actual fact on the ground, it was an extraordinarily innovative and brilliantly inventive decade. And people tend to forget that. So what your conclusion, Pippa, is, is that you believe that the technology that we have made our own, and I'm talking about the Zoom We've, it was always there, but we made it our own in the last six months. These type of technological developments are going to have some enormous productivity kick to people who can work digitally, who people who can actually tell a story digitally, who people who can actually sell themselves digitally. That's the thing. But I would add, I, I, I think the opportunities for people who are not digital, but in the real economy are also quite extraordinary. And I'll give you an example um, in Britain, there's um, I, there was a great example of a pizza company. Now, who would think you could do anything novel and interesting with pizza, right? <laughs> I mean, it's been around. Well, they had created a company that was providing pubs with pizza kits, um, and then the pubs were all closed. So the demand just died. In 10 days, they reoriented the whole business model to deliver these pizza kits to homes. And they took on Domino's, right? So they, they're not only pivoting, they're taking on the biggest brand name in the world, home deliveries. And they've been flying. I mean, a huge success. And it just goes to show you that the most important thing is imagination. It's imaginal skills that get you out of this kind of an economic mess. 
And I think that people's imaginal skills come to the fore when they're under pressure and everybody is under pressure. And as they start to lose their jobs and the furlough ends, they're really thinking, what am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? And the answer is something. And some of it's gonna work. Some of it might not work, but most of it, you know, they're gonna try. And that unleashing of an entrepreneurial wave of energy, that's a good thing. There good things are gonna come out of that. Can I just ask you, Pippa, I'm curious about if Trump is elected, what his next four years is going to look like for America and the global economy. Because what you're saying is that there, it looks like there might be an even greater wealth divide. I hear you. It's a great question. Well, first of all, I think the markets are going to, to rally. Uh, what, it doesn't matter who wins. They'll just be so relieved that the election is over. Yeah. And it sort of doesn't matter whether it's Trump or it's Biden. And, and they'll figure out that even if it's Biden and the Democrats take the House and the Senate and the White House, they're actually very divided themselves between the far left and the middle of the road. And it's going to take them a couple of years to work out what should it, the policy be exactly. So that means inaction. And the markets kind of like it when governments aren't being decisive. So I think the first response might be quite positive either way. I'm much more worried about later when you start to get more about Trump saying, well, I'm not leaving. And why should a president leave after two terms? And we've had presidents for three terms. And what's wrong with that? And national security reasons why that might be necessary invoked and stuff like that. Then it gets a bit messier, to say the least, right? That's a constitutional crisis when that comes. Can, can I just add, uh, I think it's a lovely way to end this discussion is, well, you know, the move to an American dictator could be a little problem at the very end. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> well, listen, Pippa, that has been, again, it's a, it's a real pleasure. It's a pleasure. And I hope to see you soon somewhere. And David, I'm so looking forward to seeing you somewhere because we always have such fun, you know, whenever we're speaking <laughs> on stage. And then we'll go to the bar and have a great real chat. Exactly, exactly. Say what we really think about the world. Listen, I'll see you soon. Take care. See yes. ya. Thank you. I love that stuff. Yeah, she's great. She's great. She's a really interesting person. And Fascinating and again, stuff, Mac. Fascinating. Really interesting view from the kind of Republican side. It's not one that you hear very often. And frightening. Well, I mean, at the end, I think your question was great. And we told him, but it is true. She said, well, you know, the dictatorship could be a problem at the end, you know. Yeah. But I mean, but the African-American mothers is quite resonant, right? That if they decide, I mean, that idea of Trump legalizing weed. Never is thought a master, of that. It's a masterstroke. Yeah. And, it, and it goes to the heart of the main inequality in the United States, which is black young men in prison yeah. for bullshit little drug offences, right? But you know what I found really interesting about what Pippa was saying as well is it, it, it kind of appears that the Democrats have like pretty much shot themselves in the foot, you know, with the Black Lives Matter and the riots on the streets, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they're completely understandable in, in many ways, but Trump is using them so well. Well, let's let's hold off because still the polls are suggesting that Biden is... Well ahead. He's a well ahead in most well, as states. You but said, she's... 2016 was the same, as you were saying. Yeah, well, well let's watch this space. But it was great stuff. Great stuff from Pippa. I really enjoyed that. Come here to me. Let, let me just take you back to Yugoslavia. You met Milosevic. What, what was he like? Tell you an interesting story about Milosevic, right? Yeah. I was in a bar 
late at night in Belgrade. Of course okay? you were. Picture the scene. Picture the scene. 1996, okay? Right. Between the Bosnian <laughs> War and the Kosovo War. And I'm sitting there with a mate of mine yeah. called Georgie Matic. And Georgie Matic owns a couple of bars in Belgrade. And we're having a gargle. We're having a chat. And it's dark and it's weird and it's Balkans and it's smoky and it's a crazy looking club. And I decided to sit. It's brilliant. It was brilliant. So I say, I'm going to have, and this is when I used to, to smoke. I'm going to have a smoke here. I'm going to sit up here. There's, there's, there's a little bar and there was a dance floor and there's a, a couple of chairs behind. And it was all kind of slightly tiered. I'm sitting there talking to Georgie and this big monster comes over to big shaved head, the whole thing, yeah. the Serbian, the Serbian crucifix chest going out, right? And he said, uh, get, uh, get out of the seat. I said, <laughs> I'm getting all cocky, all, all five foot two of me, you know? <laughs> you gargles in you. Why would yeah, you? <laughs> you and who's army, man, right? And I you say know to who him, I am. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So anyway, I'm sitting there. He said, get out of the seat. And I said, uh, I said, Why? He said, because it's Marco's seat. And I said, who the fuck is Marco? <laughs> it's Marco Milosevic, Milosevic's kid, his son. Jesus. who was a gangster, right? And Georgie just said, David, I think you should hightail out of Marco's seat. <laughs> and in then comes Marco with a shot, kind of like a Billy Idol, dyed blonde hair. Oh, right. Full of, full of malls, you know, gangsters' malls and, you know, and guns and the whole thing. Right, yeah. And I said... Uh, Time to rock and roll. See you later. Time to get out of there. <laughs> so, Mark, a bit of good news. The CPD stuff that we've been working on and promising for the past while is now available. Give us a quick rundown of what it's all about. Yeah, no, it's great, John. It's What we've taken is the course and the tutorials and we've made them CPD applicable in the sense that if you want to get CPD points... And a huge range of our listeners and people who might not have listened to us are CPD compliant. They need CPD. It's a continual professional development. And now they can learn economics with us and get their CPD points. So I think it's a really interesting development because lots and lots of people who are talking to us on Patreon or me on Twitter saying, can I get points for this? Can I get a... You know, I'm yep. really interested in studying economics, but it'd be really nice for me to also get a little piece of parchment, a little certificate, some points, etc. And now we are live. So if you want to learn economics with me, to learn macroeconomics in a way in which it's never been learned or taught before, have a gander at Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Join me. We'll learn economics together and you will get your CPD points. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.